Good morning again. It's good to be back here to share God's Word with you. Thankful for Pastor James a couple weeks ago for sharing, and then Pastor Phil last week. It was good to hear from him. Um, told Pastor James this morning after we prayed in my office, it's like, okay, I think it's like riding a bike, right? <laughs> Even after two weeks, it's amazing uh, how kind of uh, out of the, the uh, routine you get. But glad to be back to finish out the Gospel of Mark these next few weeks and celebrate, of course, the resurrection of Christ next week. If you have your Bibles, please open to Mark chapter 15. Mark 15, we're going to be looking at verses 33 through 47. If you're using a pew Bible, it's page 853. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for Jesus, as we've just sung. We were your enemies, but now we are brought near through the blood of Christ. Lord, we have access to you. We were once separated, your enemies. We were dead. Now we are made alive, we are brought near, we are your children. What a transformation that is through Christ, through union with him, through the fact that he has suffered on the cross, on the tree for us. Lord, by his suffering, we are healed. He took our sin, we receive his righteousness. What an unfair and glorious exchange. Lord, help us now as we reflect on Christ's final moments on the cross and his burial. And Lord, what that means for us. Help us to understand your word. We pray in your son's name. Amen. If you have your Bible, please follow along as I read, starting in verse 33. When the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lemma sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, Behold, he is calling Elijah. Someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink, saying, Wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, Truly, this man was the Son of God. There were also women looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James the Younger, and of Joseph and Salome. And when he was in Galilee, they followed him and ministered to him. And there were also many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. And when evening had come, since it was the day of preparation, that is, the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council, who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God, took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Pilate was surprised to hear that he should have already died. And summoning the centurion, he asked him whether he was already dead. When he learned from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the corpse to Joseph. And Joseph brought a linen shroud and taking him down, wrapped him in the linen shroud and laid him in a tomb that had been cut out of the rock. And he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where he was laid. There's something about having access and being denied access. Wanting to get into something, but yet being denied for whatever reason. One way that this is made evident in our lives today is the fact of passwords on computers and websites. (laughs) 
I'm sure many of you have some need to log into something online or on your phone somehow, and there's a password that protects it. And you think you remember the password and the email that goes with it, and so you type in the email, and then you type in the password, and it pops up, and it says, incorrect password. That has to be it, right? I'll try it again. Incorrect password. Well, maybe there needs to be a capital letter or an exclamation point or some other punctuation in there, and it has to be, you know, 12 letters long to, to make it work. And so you, you scratch your, your, your brain, and what variation of the password that you always use, you use. And so you try it again, and then all of a sudden it says, you're, you're too many tries, your account's been locked, access has been denied. That's frustrating. Um, my parents are up here visiting this weekend, and one of the things I often have to do when my parents visit is help my dad try and remember one of his passwords. <laughs> now, there's certain ways, certain tools that you can use to remember your passwords, or they autofill them, and those are great. But last night I was helping my dad, and I said, do you know your password? He goes, one second. And he pulls out of his computer bag three or four sheets of computer paper covered in chicken scratchings and passwords and things scratched out and things added and different dates from when he set up different accounts. And I just, I just shook my head. <laughs> That's something that happens to most of us, if not all of us. We want into something, but yet access is denied because we don't know the password. We don't have the proper credentials to be admitted into something. We are all denied access from the presence of God. And it's not a password or an email that keeps us out of his presence that we are denied access. It is our own sin. Who we are in our nature, we are sinners. And because of our sin, we are denied access to God. He is a holy, just God. We are sinful people. Therefore, we cannot be in his presence. Now, that's a problem. There's no reset password on that account. So then how do we have access to God? How do we have access to the one who has made us and created us and, and who is worthy of our worship? It's only through Jesus. It's only through what he endured for us on the cross as we read this passage here and what it means for us. Jesus has made a way. We have access to God through him. Our big idea this morning is this, is that Jesus makes a way for sinners to come to God through his death on the cross. Jesus makes a way for sinners to come to God through his death on the cross. It's through what Christ did for us on the cross or on the tree, in 1 Peter it says, that we have access to God, that we can come before him. Jesus' final moments Reveal that he suffered the wrath that we deserved and he died the death that we deserved. Abandoned by almost everyone. Buried in a tomb that wasn't his. Proclaimed as the son of God by a pagan soldier. Jesus here brings fulfillment to his entire ministry in the gospel of Mark as a suffering servant king. Through his suffering here and his death, access to God has been made. The curtain is torn as the old way of approaching God has been replaced by the more perfect way through Christ. So let's look here how Christ suffers the death or suffers the wrath we deserve and suffers the death that we deserve to make a way for us, his Father. In verse 
33, Mark continues here as we look at that Christ, how he suffered the wrath that we deserved. Jesus is already on the cross. We read about that a few weeks ago. Through the trial before the Sanhedrin, before the trial before Pilate, excuse me, Jesus is crucified. They let Barabbas go, the murderer, the insurrectionist, and they want Jesus, the man who Pilate says has done nothing wrong. Jesus is innocent. Even a pagan ruler realizes that he's done nothing. But yet the mob cries out to crucify him. The Roman soldiers put him on the cross. They mock him. The crowd spit at him and, and mock him as well. And the religious leaders mock him saying, let's see if he can come down off the cross. And now we come to verse 33. And Mark says, the sixth hour had come. That's noon. By the Jewish reckoning, the sixth hour is noon. Midday. Generally at midday, the sun is close to its peak. It's, it's highest in the sky. When we read here how Jesus is suffering his father's wrath, that something special happens. Mark simply records for us that there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. This darkness, it's a supernatural darkening of the sun. Biblical scholars and Historians have figured out exactly when this would have been and, and the time of year it would have been. It wouldn't have been an eclipse, uh, a regularly scheduled eclipse, you could say, as God has ordained the universe. It wouldn't have been just a stormy, cloudy day. Mark would have recorded for us. But this is a supernatural darkening of the whole land until the ninth hour. That is three o'clock in the afternoon. From noon to three, there's a supernatural darkening of the sky. And what this symbolizes is God's judgment being poured out. What are some other instances of darkness? Hopefully your mind goes to Egypt, the 10 plagues. God sent darkness as judgment on the nation of Egypt. Darkness itself is a symbol of sin. We're to walk in the light, not the dark. Men love darkness rather than light. God is light. And through the darkening of the skies, we see God's judgment being poured out. And at verse 34, at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice. More than likely, Jesus has been on the cross roughly six hours. He's being suffered. He's suffering. He's, he's being mocked and all these different things. But at the ninth hour, three o'clock in the afternoon, Jesus, who has been more reserved than we would ever expect, He's hardly said a word. He hasn't argued back. He hasn't shown force of any in his interaction with those who are crucifying him. Now he cries out. This idea of a, of a cry of anguish, almost of pain. Mark records the Aramaic, the Eloi, Eloi, Lema Sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus cries this out, and it is heard. It's actually a quote from Psalm 22. Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Here, most people believe, and I think it's a fair statement, this is the sense in which God's wrath is at its zenith as it's being poured out upon Christ. Yes, Jesus suffered physically. He was beaten. He was flogged. He was mocked. He went through the 
entire excruciating events of carrying the cross and being crucified. But I think as we reflect on the wrath of God being poured out on Jesus, this was the most painful thing that he endured. The wrath of his Father being poured out on him for sinners like you and me. Why have you forsaken me? Some have think, well, is this a, a split in the Trinity? Is, is God the Father angry with Jesus and all this? And I think that, that that idea of forsaken is the fact that judgment is being poured out. Not that God the Father is somehow disposing of Jesus, but rather the, poor, the wrath of God is being poured out and placed squarely on his shoulders. This wrath is excruciating. But it's the point of why Jesus has come. He has come to give his life as a ransom for many. And this is the payment. This is what is owed. Justice has to be dispensed. And here we read of justice being executed upon Christ. Sin is being paid for by the sinless Lamb of God. And those around him heard him. Verse 35. Some of the bystanders hearing it said, Behold, he is calling Elijah. In Jewish tradition, Elijah, of course, and we believe, did not die. He was taken up to heaven. As Elisha watched, and he saw the chariots come and to pick up Elijah and take him to, to God. And, and it was often thought in Jewish tradition that Elijah would come to help those who needed help, uh, who were being persecuted and suffering. Uh, it became a nomenclature of, Elijah will help you. And so bystanders here will think Jesus is calling for Elijah, which is interesting because what does Elijah's name mean? God is Yahweh, or Yahweh is God. <laughs> in fact, they are, by naming the term Elijah, in a sense, they're, they're referencing Jesus in a way. But he is here, suffering for them. And then verse 36, someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. This sour wine was almost, for lack of a better phrase, an energy drink. <laughs> it was wine mixed with vinegar that was given to soldiers to keep them awake on duty. Uh, they would drink that to stimulate their, their minds and their senses. Uh, usually you think of alcohol, dulls the senses, but you mix it with a little vinegar, make it sour. That'll pep you right up, I'm sure, right? If you ever drink vinegar of any sort. <laughs> uh, it's not quite the uh, tantalizing taste on the taste buds. But this, this drink was to, to, in a sense, bolster his spirits or, or, or his, his, uh, his, his senses to, to wake him up. And others said, no, wait, let us see if Elijah will truly come to, to take him down. It's just a spectacle. This interaction here is just a spectacle. It's, he's being treated almost like an animal. Let's poke it and see what happens. Let's give him wine. No, let's, say, let's, let's, let's see, see what happens, see if Elijah actually comes. These people aren't caring for the good of his own soul. They're just, it's just a show to them. But as Jesus suffers the wrath of God, as these onlookers continue to mock and view it as a spectacle, as, as entertainment, we come to verse 37. And Mark simply records for us that Jesus uttered a loud cry. Now, the other gospel writers have much more interaction of Jesus on the cross. We have in Luke the interaction with the other robbers hanging on the cross. And in John, we have many of Christ's words recorded for us. 
most people think that this loud cry would be the same as the it is finished cry. When it is it's done. It is finished. The wrath of God has been poured out. It has been absorbed by Christ and it is finished. This loud cry comes from the mouth of Jesus and he breathed his last. There's no nuance in that phrase. Jesus stopped breathing. He died. He died. And at this moment in Mark's gospel, we read this. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from the top to the bottom. Now, curtains can fray, but usually it's the bottom that frays, where it rubs along the ground. But this curtain is torn from the top to the bottom. This would have been a very heavy curtain. Question on exactly what curtain it is in the temple, whether it was in uh, separating the area from the, the commoners to the priests or into the Holy of Holies. Uh, we aren't necessarily sure here in Mark's gospel. But I think as Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, the ultimate sacrifice, I would tend to lean toward the fact that this curtain was the one that separated the Holy of Holies from everything else. The very presence of God where the Ark of the Covenant was to be. That if you open that, you would be utterly consumed with the glory and majesty of God and you would die instantly. But here that curtain is torn in two. From the top to the bottom. What does this signify? Why does Mark include this? Is this just a neat fact? Well, this is, this is crucial to the identity and ministry of Jesus. The temple was the way of approaching God that God had ordained for the nation of Israel. The temple and the temple sacrifices and all those things, those aren't man-made things. They were put in place by God. Read the book of Leviticus and Exodus and Deuteronomy and how all this plays out. God instituted temple worship. It was good and right and true. It was a way for God to demonstrate to the people that they were unclean and they needed to be washed and purified as they approached him, that he's a holy and just and righteous God. So the sacrifices in the temple was not a bad thing. It was to remind the people of who God was and how they are sinners in need of a holy God. Now, of course, those things can be distorted by men. They can be abused by priests, so on. They can be neglected and they can be used for the wrong reasons. But in their uh, institution by, by God, they were a good thing. And from the moment on Mount Sinai when they received the Ten Commandments and the, the Levitical teaching for all the priests and how they offer sacrifices, so on and so forth, those were good and right and true. But they needed to be repeated. We understand that. Every year, these sacrifices repeated again and again. Sacrifices needed to be offered. And again and again, the nation was to follow them. But here, we come to this point where Jesus himself has come, the Messiah. As John the Baptist preaches, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And Jesus is the one who fulfills all those requirements of the law. In Hebrews, it says Jesus is the ultimate and perfect sacrifice. And as the priests had to continue day after day after day to offer in the temple, Jesus offers himself once and then he sits down. This tearing of the curtain in two symbolizes the end 
of the sacrificial system because the ultimate sacrifice has been made. And therefore, we approach God now not through the slaughtering of bulls and of goats and of sacrifices and offerings at the temple, but rather we approach God through a person, through Jesus. Jesus even said this in his ministry, John 14. Right? How does one come to the Father? No one comes to the Father except by me. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus says in John 4, as he's talking to the woman at the well, he asks the question, where do you worship? Well, some would say Jerusalem. Others say, where we worship here in Samaria. And Jesus, I tell you, there will be a come day, coming a day when you will worship in spirit and truth. Meaning, you do not need to go to a specific location, but rather the truth of who Jesus is, the embodied truth, and through the Holy Spirit, you can worship God anywhere. Through Jesus, we have access to God because he is the ultimate sacrifice. He is the final sacrifice. He is the perfect sacrifice. And as the curtain is torn in two, we realize that there is a seismic shift happening in the way that we approach God. This is also an interesting nugget here. That term tear, the curtain of the temple was torn or or, uh, torn in two. That word is only used one other time in the Gospel of Mark, and it's used at the very beginning when Jesus is baptized. And it says the heavens open. Literally, it's the heavens tear. And just as the voice of the Father says, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased, and the Holy Spirit descends. Literally, there's a tearing and an acknowledgement of who Jesus is. We have the bookend in the Gospel of Mark where the curtain is torn in two as Jesus' ministry, in a sense, is complete. And he has suffered for us. Verse 39, And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last. Imagine being that centurion set there on guard Watching Jesus. This is a centurion, a Roman soldier who's in charge of roughly 100 Roman soldiers. Century, centurion. This would be a hardened Roman pagan soldier. Now he's heard of Jesus. He's probably watched Jesus throughout this whole ordeal. And as Jesus comes to the end, and as Jesus gives up his spirit and breathes his last, and all of this happens, look at what the centurion says. Truly, this man was the Son of God. Now, is this an acknowledgement of faith? Perhaps. But it clearly was an acknowledgement that Jesus was someone more than what everybody said or thought he was. People don't normally die like this. But the way in just Jesus conducted himself and as the centurion witnessed his death on the cross, he knew that Jesus was the Son of God. It's interesting. Mark's gospel, we've been tracing this theme, right? Jesus has come preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God. Mark, in the very beginning of Mark, Mark 1, this is what he says as he introduces his gospel. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ the Son of God. That's how Mark introduces his gospel. But yet throughout the gospel of Mark, the disciples kind of get it, but they kind of don't. They kind of grasp who Jesus is, but yet they falter and fail. The demons believe, but yet they aren't allowed to speak to it. 
The crowds have a false idea of who Jesus is and what he's come to do. And the religious leaders have completely denied Jesus. Here we come to this statement, this declaration, this clear fact of who Jesus is. And it comes from a pagan Roman soldier. Truly, verily, certainly this man was the son of God. What a wonderful act of God's grace in that this Roman soldier confesses Christ as the Son of God. And then Mark also mentions these women looking on. Mary Magdalene, and Mary the mother of James the younger, and of Joseph and Salome. And these women are associated with Jesus and his ministry. And he, Mark says when he was in Galilee, they followed him and ministered to him. And there are other, also many women who came up with him to Jerusalem. Though we have been focusing on the disciples, there were other followers of Jesus. And these women, they ministered to Jesus and to the disciples. And, and it also said that they helped support the ministry of Jesus. And though the disciples are scattered, there still is a remnant looking on. And remarkably, it's women who would have been uh, looked down upon in, in, in the culture, in a sense, in which they are, in a sense, second class. They couldn't uh, bear testimony in court because it wasn't a valid witness. And so what is Mark doing here by including these women? Well, he's introducing them because of what's going to come with the resurrection. It's also a proof that this is not a fabricated story. Because if you were looking for support of Jesus you're not going to include women in the first century. That's just not what you would do. But Mark includes these women as witnesses to the resurrection and death of Jesus because as they see Jesus die in a few moments, well, in a few verses, in a few days, they're going to see Jesus raised from the dead as well. Well, what do we read here in verses 33 through 41 is this, is that Jesus endured the wrath of God that you and I deserve. This paragraph simply records for us the events of Jesus' suffering on the cross. Yet this paragraph is the very heart of the gospel, the very soul, the core, the inner ring of every other action played out in our faith. Jesus bore the wrath of God on the cross in the place of sinners. And in doing so, he secured redemption for sinners. We have access to God, for the temple curtain has been torn in two. And now we have access to God through Jesus, through a person. It's not through outward actions and conformity to the laws, but it's do you know Jesus? Do you know him? Do you believe in him? Do you understand that there's nothing you could do to earn your way or have access to God, but it's only through the righteousness of Christ? This moment is the climax, you could say, of salvation history. The point to which the whole of the biblical testimony has been pointing. For God created Adam and Eve in the garden. And they walked with God in the cool of the day. But they sinned and what happened? They were cast out. Ever since Genesis 3, man has been trying to figure out how do we get back into the garden and walk with God in the cool of the day? What keeps us out? Our sin. The fact that we are separated from God. The sacrificial system was used as a way to purify, to make clean so the nation could have access to God. Again and again and again, we see how do we have access to God? How do we get back to that? How do we make a way? The, the 
point is we can't make a way. That God had to make a way, and He did through Christ. Through Jesus, God is claiming back all of creation. He's inaugurating the kingdom of God in Mark 1. And according to 2 Corinthians 5, He made Him who knew no sin to be sent for us so that we could be the righteousness of God through whom we have reconciliation. We are reconciled to God. This is what the wrath that Jesus bore did for us. And secondly, he died the death. Of course, we already read here in these passages that Jesus died. But here, the idea of he died the death, the events surrounding his death and his burial. He died the death that we deserved. Verse 42, And when evening had come, since it was the day of preparation, that is, the day before the Sabbath. So this would have been approaching 6 o'clock. Joseph of Arimathea, he's a respected member of the council, that is, the Sanhedrin, who was himself looking for the kingdom of God. Was, Jesus, was Joseph a believer? Was he a faithful? Was he interested? We aren't quite sure, but he is faithful and bold enough to go and do something on behalf of Christ. Mark says he took courage and he went to Pilate and he asked for the body of Jesus. And Pilate was surprised that he should have already died. Most people who were crucified lasted at least 24 hours before they died. Some several days. Others, they had to break their ankles, break their legs so that they would die faster. Here, Jesus died in a matter of six to nine hours, which would be very quick. And so Pilate was a little skeptical. And so who does he ask? Who knows death and dead people? A Roman soldier. He asked the centurion. It's implied that this is the same centurion who was watching over him and made the confession in verse 39, if Jesus was truly dead. And he learned from the centurion, verse 45, that he was dead. And so he granted the corpse to Joseph. Everyone else has scattered. His other followers have dispersed. Even the women were looking on from afar. But here is one courageous individual who asked for the body of Jesus. Joseph bought a linen shroud and placed it on him, and he placed him in a tomb. It's a fresh tomb. More than likely, this was Joseph's family tomb. It would have been a small cave carved out of a hillside. And what they would do is they would embalm bodies. They would cover them with spices and basically leave the body in the tomb until the body decomposed. And then they would take the bones that were left over and put them in a small box in another location in the tomb. So it became a family vault. And so there were areas for bodies to lay. There'd be enough room to walk around. And it was sealed with a large stone that could be rolled back and forth. And so Joseph takes Jesus and lies him in a tomb. This is not Jesus' tomb. It's not his family's tomb. Jesus is, is all alone. Again and again, we read how Jesus is, is abandoned. There's one individual. There's not a huge crowd. There's not weeping and wailing and mourning that would have accompanied any other Jewish funeral. But it's one person courageously asking for his body to lay him in a tomb that doesn't belong to him. And it's so rushed that they didn't even have time to properly put spices and things on his body to cover the stench. That's what the women were going to be doing on Easter morning, right? They were coming to, uh, to basically make the body of Jesus smell good as it decomposes. And it's rushed. It's put in the tomb. Joseph does this, says the end of verse 47, and he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. And a little side note here, verse 47, Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, 
saw where he was laid. So they, Mark is planning these little things. The women are there, they're watching, they know where his body is so that when they go to anoint it on Sunday morning after the Sabbath, they know exactly which tomb it should be. Jesus died publicly on the cross and his burial was an affair with little to no fanfare. He was buried without mourning in a grave that didn't belong to him. The burial process was minimal and not complete. There was no large gathering and weeping and wailing. There was no feast in his honor, no family to gather around, no widespread notice sent throughout Jerusalem or the nation. At his death and his burial, Jesus was laid low literally and figuratively. He was despised and rejected, abandoned and alone, humbled and insignificant in every way. Here is the Son of God, the Son of David, the Son of Man, laid low in the ground. As we take a step back, we see that this is where the seed of the serpent has struck the heel of the seed of the woman. He's been injured, seemingly dead. What's to happen now? What will the disciples do? Has all this been in vain? Here is the one present at creation, according to Colossians 1, holding the universe together. Here is the one who is to receive an everlasting kingdom from his father, but he's dead and he's buried without pomp or circumstance. He's not buried as a king. He's buried as a servant. In his unjust death and burial, we reflect on this fact that this should be each one of us. Unceremoniously buried, unnamed in the ground from whence we came. Yet it is not you and I enduring this, but it is rather the Son of God himself. Jesus suffers the wrath of God. The curtain is torn in two. His body is dead and lifeless. It is dead. He didn't faint. He wasn't taken off the cross and revived. A Roman centurion knows a dead body when he sees it. And he proclaimed it to Pilate. You think Pilate was going to let a half-dead Jesus go away? No. And he's buried in an unmarked tomb that does not belong to him all alone. Jesus suffered the wrath that we deserved and he died the death that we deserved. Why? To make a way for us to have access to God. This passage is quite simple and the application is quite simple. Do you believe that Jesus died on the cross in your place? This assumes several things. First of all, it realizes that you are a sinner in need of forgiveness. If you don't believe you're a sinner, then there's no need for Jesus to die. But the fact of the matter is this, is that we are all sinners. Every one of us, by nature, are children of wrath. We have disobeyed God. I'm not a sinner. Yes, you are. (laughs) Try not to sin. Can't. We are in need of forgiveness. Our sin requires judgment from a holy God who created us, and you are accountable to him. Secondly, that Jesus, as he died on the cross, was truly God. And in dying on the cross, he suffered the punishment for you and I. The sacrifice, the substitution, is the only thing that can deliver you from your sins. Jesus is the only way, and Christianity is the only religion where the God in which we worship says, you are not worthy but I will die for you to make you worthy. It's not a self-help, self-improvement religion, but it's a rather, you are so bad, you can't do anything about it, but I'm so gracious and loving, I'm going to make a way for you. This is a fact that Jesus is the only way to God. Jesus himself. 
How do you get to heaven? It's not by going to church. It's not by having faith in God. There's a lot of people who believe in God who go to hell. Jesus himself says, there are going to be many who say, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? And Jesus says, get, get, get away from me, for I did not know you. Just because you have a cross-stitched pillow with a Bible verse or the word faith on your wall or Jesus fish on your car does not mean that you know Jesus. You may go to church your entire life and don't know Jesus, you're still going to hell. Jesus It's Christ crucified, Paul says, that we preach. This is not a generic faith or good things we do or faith for the sake of faith, but it's an intellectual understanding and a heart acknowledgement that faith in Jesus is the only way of salvation, that you are a sinner and the only way that you can be redeemed is by believing in Jesus. When we stand before God, if he would ask you the question, why should I let you into heaven? The only answer is, Jesus. Third point is this, and without faith in Christ, you are destined for hell. You may be a good person and do good things. You may help your neighbors and be active in your community, but without faith in Christ, you are still in your sins. This is more than a nice story or a philosophical approach to life. It's a matter of life and death. Believe in Jesus, receive forgiveness, enjoy eternal life forever with God, worshiping him and living in unending joy. Think that Christianity is backward and offensive and is mean? Fine, but you will spend eternity in hell enduring the wrath of God. You either believe in Jesus or you don't. But this is why we should. 1 Peter 2, 22 to 24, we read it already this morning. He committed no sin, that's Jesus. Neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Jesus willingly submitted himself to the plan of his father. And Peter says this, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. That's the cross. That we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. It is only through Jesus that we have forgiveness of our sins. We have access to God. Only through Jesus. Only through Jesus do we have forgiveness of our sins. Only through Jesus can we come to the Father. Only through Jesus can we enjoy eternal life. Only through Jesus do we have peace and hope and forgiveness and something (laughs) to endure the suffering of this world knowing that this is not Only through Jesus do we have a way forward. And the question is this. Are you willing to confess what the Roman centurion confessed? That truly this man was the son of God. Would you believe that this man who suffered on the cross for you is God? That there's no other way to be made right with the Father, except through Christ. We have access to God because Jesus makes a way for us through his death on the cross. Father, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you for the access that we have in him. Lord, help us not to take it for granted. Help those of us who know Christ to continue to enjoy that union we have with him. And for those here who may not know Christ, who are questioning, may they make sure
Lord, that there's a need to trust in Jesus. Otherwise, eternity in hell awaits. Lord, there is judgment, there is suffering. And yes, salvation removes that from us. But it's also the positive, Lord, that we get to be with you. You are loving and good and kind and gracious. And you are one that we would want to spend eternity with. Lord, I pray that you would continue to draw people to yourselves this morning. We pray in your son's name.